You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, everybody. Ken Davenport here. Eight performances left of Spring Awakening. Eight, that's it. Last week and it goes away. Catch up before January 24th, springawakeningthemusical.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendabimport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. Now, look, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast while doing other stuff, running on the treadmill, making dinner, but I'm going to tell you right now to stop whatever it is you're doing so you can give this podcast your undivided attention that's how special our guest is today. Ladies and podcast listeners, I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Mr. James Lapine. Welcome, James. You don't say that for every podcast? Not everyone, just you. <laughs> just you. Uh, so look, they say the book to a musical is the hardest nut of a show to crack. Well, James has won the Tony Award for the book of a musical three times, three times, Into the Woods, Falsettos, and Passion. Uh, in addition to his incredible contributions to the theater as a writer, uh, by the way, he also wrote Sunday in the Park with George, which won him a Pulitzer. Uh, James is also an acclaimed Broadway director for Falsettos, the recent Annie Revival, that production of Sunday in the Park, and 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, among others. Written and directed movies as well, been nominated for a billion awards. I'm in his office right now, and there's all sorts of plaques on the wall. Uh, I'm going to stop right here so you can just go to his Playbill Vault or his Wikipedia page to read the lengthy credits. But, James, let's start at the beginning. How did you get bit by the theater bug? Where did this all begin for you? Well, it's kind of a long story. Um uh, I didn't really get bit, as it were, till well in my 20s. I was a uh, graphic designer uh, for the Yale School of Drama, and I 
did their I began by doing their magazine called Yale Theater. And uh, Bob Brustein, who was the dean then, loved my design and invited me to a full-time position uh, at the Yale School of Drama, uh, teaching a design course and doing all the graphics for the theater, the Yale Rep, as well as the magazine. So uh, it began then, I guess, because uh, I was surrounded by theater and doing the magazine. I was constantly kind of reading plays and reading about the theater. And um, once I was in New Haven... He ran the place sort of like a conservatory, and in January, he had take a couple of weeks where everyone in the school, including faculty and staff, um, had to participate in something outside their own particular realm. Uh, my design students suggested I, I direct a play, and a friend of mine who was a stage manager produced it, and I... Um, said to the students, well, find me a play to direct, and they came up with this very wacky Gertrude Stein play, which was um, three pages long and five acts. So uh, I tackled that. It was called Photograph because photography was really my main interest in life, and um, we put in a, put up a very uh, avant-garde production of this Gertrude Stein play, and uh, people seemed to really like it, and the local paper wrote it up, and um, it was suggested maybe I could do it in New York, and uh, some people got on that. And uh, a friend of mine said, "Gee, Jasper Johns is a huge fan of Gertrude Stein." So I don't, you know, I got his address and wrote him, and he sent me a check for twenty five hundred dollars, and we put it on in in a little loft down in Soho. And another friend said, "What can I do to help?" and I said, well, I don't know how you go about getting critics. Maybe you could get somebody to review it in New York. And um, she just picked up the phone and called the lead critic of the Times, at, uh, who was Richard Eder, which is bizarre when you think about it now. And she convinced him to come down to see it, and he wrote a kind of half-page rave review, and that's how I sort of started in the theater. It all sounds so easy. I know. Ridiculous, right? <laughs> well, I'm sure it wasn't as easy as it sounds. No, it was pretty easy. <laughs> A one letter, you raise some money, one call, you get a New York Times critic. I know, I won an Obie Award. It was um, really, you know, I think it's interesting when you don't have that much uh, really emotionally associated with that you're doing it. You're just doing it for fun and because it was kind of um, strange enterprise. And uh, so uh, here were all these people paying all this money to go to the drama school and I was somehow overnight you know, getting offers to direct things. Well, that's a very interesting comment you said. You didn't have this all this emotion. You were just doing it for fun. Had you, even when you were directing it here in New York, where you were like, oh, this is going to be my career now. So this is very oh, high no, stakes. Oh, no, 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 no. Never thought. I just figured it would all go away one day and I'd go back to being a graphic designer or a photographer, you know. So, no, it was uh, not like I had some burning desire to do it. And that reduction of stress and pressure and maybe actually freed you up to do even better work. Well, you know, I'm of a certain age when we were of the sort of hippie generation and you didn't really think of yourself as a careerist and you just kind of went, I just bounced around, you know, I had lots and lots of different kinds of jobs and, uh, you know, as I said, photography was my main interest, but I found I didn't really enjoy uh, doing that as a living. Um, I was doing, you know, journalistic kind of things. So 
I turned to graphic design, something else I didn't know that much about. I had a little training. So it's just, I was sort of open to whatever life blew at me. So you get a rave in the times, people are going to see the play. What happens next? Oh, it closed pretty quickly because the lady who ran the loft had something else coming in. Uh, and it's so funny. I always thought, well, gee, I, Joe Papp should come and see this and put it on, bring it to his theater. But it never dawned on me to like do anything about it, which was kind of ironic when I met Joe Papp, you know, a couple of years later. Um, no, someone else came to me uh, with an offer to direct something. So I did that. Uh, Lynn Austin, Mary Silverman had a little group called Music Theater Group or something like that. And I had this idea based on a Jungian case history. So I did a very abstract kind of, you know, again, avant-garde kind of thing. And But I was still teaching and, and designing. And, um, and then I thought, uh, well, you know... I didn't really wasn't a great teacher. And what I didn't like about designing was that I didn't have final say, you know, because you're working for somebody. And I really think I, in my heart, want to just work for myself. So I got a little stint at a writer's colony, the Malay colony. And I said, I'm going to sit down and see if I can write a commercial something so I can make some money and actually, you know, see if that would pan out. And it sort of did. I wrote a play called Table Settings, which was sort of a arty, farty Jewish comedy. <laughs> and uh, it got a commercial, ended up getting a commercial run, and I, that's when I really uh, thought, well, I could actually, like, not be in debt and do this thing, which is so, pretty funny because it's pretty hard to not be in debt and start out in the theater. So your writing career starts to flourish. Right. You have this directing career as well. Well, let's see. I hadn't directed... Uh, no, I had just directed... I didn't have a career. I directed a couple of things that were my own creation. So uh, after table settings, you know, it, it ran a while. I don't know what I did next. Oh, I, you know what happened? Um, Bill Finn, because um, we were at Playwrights Horizons, which was uh, a great opportunity for our several of us of a certain... of the age then of being in our late 20s, early 30s, and uh, Bill came after me to direct a show of his, so that was the first time I directed something that wasn't uniquely my own. Only the third thing I directed. And it was? Uh, March the Falsettos. That little show. That little show. Yeah, another one that was just like thrown up together. You know, just uh, Andre Bishop kind of put us together, and Bill had like five songs, you know, of something, no real sense of what it was, and uh, there were no workshops. Andre said, okay, I'll do it up in the upstairs, little 99-seat theater, and, you know, we just put it together and, uh, you know, sold tickets, had an audience come and opened it, um, which was pretty pretty wild. You know, I think it was so special that way because it was very organic. You know, we had no set design. So I just say to the set designer, oh, get me a table, get me a couch, get me a this, you know, put some wheels on it, you know. We just kind of built it together. Say to Bill, go write a song about this, write a song about that, let's get a little kid in it. And, you know, it kind of grew that way and became very special. Is that the first production where you wrote the book and directed at the well, same time? I didn't realize I was writing the book at the time perfectly honest. I guess I was in conjunction with Bill. They were very much Bill's characters, but he didn't quite know. There wasn't really 
the drama of it was kind of undeveloped. You know, he had this idea that a guy leaves his wife for a guy, and that was about, you know, and he had some great love songs and this and that, but there really wasn't a drama in it. And he had the psychiatrist that said, well, what if the psychiatrist gets together with the wife, you know, and let's give them a kid. And, you know, so it kind of, I guess I was book writing and not realizing it at the time. So a lot of people say, and you may have just described it, but in simple words, many people email me and say, oh, there's no, there's no dialogue in that show. Mm. Uh, how, how is there a book to it? What do you think the primary job of a book writer is? Well, I think what um, people don't go to a musical for the book, you know, they go for the music. So I think primarily on a very basic level structure is what a book writer does with a musical. But, you know, it can be varied and every person I've worked with has been a little different. But I would say that structure is the the key to a successful musical. And, um, you know, the funny thing about musicals is when they're good, they just look really easy. That's why everybody thinks they can do them and they're really so difficult to do. And I think book writers are, are underappreciated, certainly. Because you have to also know what needs to be sung and what needs to be spoken. And that's a big, big decision to make. If you could only choose one of the disciplines to do for the rest of your life, write or direct, which one would you choose? Oh, God. Probably directing because it's easier. <laughs> I think writing is a more um, satisfying thing to do. But when you say the rest of your life... If I had to have a term of it, I think a directing's easier. Who has more control in modern Broadway, a writer or a director, today? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and, and and you're talking musicals versus plays. I certainly think the writer in a play is, is, is where the buck stops. I think musicals get a little bit more uh, complicated because there's, particularly when there are many collaborators, and I would say it probably falls to the director. Has it always been that way? Do you, have you seen a change? In um, well, I don't know. I would say probably in the era of Jerry Robbins, it was the director, even though he was working with Sondheim and, and you know, uh, Lawrence and Bernstein. But, I mean, he was such a driving force that I think he probably would have been the person that pulled that together. But I'm I'm a writer myself, and I really feel... What's great about the theater is primarily it's a writer's medium and should remain so. So sometimes musicals can be more director-driven because uh, they're so hard to pull together. So speaking of Mr. Sondheim, how did that collaboration begin? Obviously a frequent collaborator of yours. Uh, again, another freakish kind of uh, situation after... I worked with a, a, a fellow named Luis Sanjurjo, who was one of the producers of Table Settings, and he he had an office with someone named Lewis Allen, and I had this idea. Uh, also, I was working with a fellow named Stephen Graham, who's not producing anymore, and Steve said, let's do something else, and what do you want to do uh, after Table Settings? I said, well, I have this idea, and there's this book, A Cool Million, that I really love by Nathaniel West, and I thought it would be a cool musical and um, he said, well, who who should write the music? And I went, oh, Randy Newman, you know. So next thing I knew, I was in Randy Newman's house having a chat with Randy Newman. And Randy Newman told me the material was too dark for him. So that gives you some idea. 
if Randy Newman is saying it's too dark, how dark it was. And then Lewis happened to be in a discussion, and Lewis said, what about Stephen Sondheim? And to be perfectly honest, I didn't really, because I'm not from the theater, of course I knew he was a bigwig, but i had only seen one show of his, which was Sweeney Todd. Uh, and um, I said, sure, you know, and he's, he sent it to Steve, a cool million, and then Steve uh, had come to see Table Settings and March of the Falsettos and said he'd like to meet me. And uh, so we were introduced, and um, that was right after Merrily We Roll Along had failed on Broadway, so he was kind of down in the dumps, and I think it was a turning point for him. So we came to meet one another at that point. What was the first show you did together? Sunday in the park, yeah. It was funny. He he read The Cool Million. He said, gee, it reminds me too much of Candide, which he had already worked on. But he said, you know, I'd be happy to discuss other projects. And... um uh, so that's what we did, and somehow Sunday was born. And where did that idea come from? Where was it in the... Well, <clears throat> to go back, I and when I did the Gertrude Stein play called Photograph, I used the image of Le Grand Jot as one of the inspirations for, for the play. Um, that play was like a theme and variation, and I did that little three-page play like 15 different times with different kinds of motifs. And one of them was Sunday in the Park because it was one of my all-time favorite paintings. Uh, so when Steve and I were talking, uh, you have to, again, remember I was not schooled in the theater arts, so I'm more a visual person. I brought over lots of different images and just things to chat about. Rather than chatting about story, we were just chatting about Images, you know, and looking at things, and I brought that that over, and um, I say, well, that that looks like stage stage to me, you know. And we talked about it, and uh, and then I went off and just started writing. So, talk to me about that part of your process—the just starting writing. You're inspired yeah. by an image. Where do you start with something like that? Well. Um, it's a long time ago, so I, I'm very much of the free association school, so uh, I'm sure I smoked a joint and sat at a typewriter and started typing, literally. Um, if ever there was a case for the legalization of marijuana, that was it. <laughs> Smoke a joint, out pop Sunday in the Park with George. Well, you know, if you look at that show, it's pretty stoned. <laughs> so, um, you know, I... I like to not know where I'm going, actually. To me, that's a pleasure in writing. Uh, I'm not a big uh, outliner and a researcher. I didn't do any research on the painting. I didn't want to know about it. I wanted to just have it come from my own imagination rather than be stuck with a lot of facts, which would hem me in. I mean, the conceit of it was that the painter was a character, so that gave me somewhere to go. And as I went along, I remember, again, being kind of a visual guy, I put a uh, a piece of tracing paper over the image and started identifying characters and just saying, this guy looks like a boatman, this person looks like another artist, uh, and playing around uh, just what I imagined the mentality of a person who would make that painting because it's the more you look at it the more fascinating it is if you notice nobody is ever looking at anybody else in that painting uh, the proportions are completely bizarre if you look carefully um, 
the uh, repetition of certain images of the women. And uh, I just started becoming the artist, really, in a way, the way he became an artist to make the painting. I became, you know, an artist to make something for the stage. You've obviously, in addition to Sondheim and Bill Finn, you've you've worked with a bunch of different folks. What's the your tips for working with a composer and a lyricist? It seems like they, the ones that I've spoken to, they seem to have the rules of, well, I'm uh, from what I've heard, Sondheim doesn't like to write a song until the scene is done. Right, correct. Right? I've heard the opposite from other composers. Yeah, Bill Finn is somebody who sits down and writes a song before he has a show, in a way. Well, he works sort of a little bit more like I work, in a way. Um, I don't know that there are any rules, because you're dealing with people, and everybody is unique. And and I think the rule is that you have to um, bend. You know, you have to find how to get the best out of your collaborator and how they get the best out of you. And I haven't done it that much. I mean... I know I sometimes get criticized for directing my own stuff or why don't I let somebody else direct it. But in a funny way, I find the one time I let somebody else direct something of mine in its initial stage wasn't very successful. And it was mainly because I realized through the directing process, I learned what I'm writing. And um, the other nice thing about working with a Bill Finn or Sondheim is just two of us, which is a lot easier than a room full of four people, you know, or five people. Um, but I don't know that there's any prescription for successful collaboration other than, uh, Steve had a, a really great saying, here's a man I worked with for, you know, 30 years and we've never had a disagreement. I mean, we've disagreed about things, but we've never had any kind of fight. And his feeling is whoever cares most wins. And I think it's a good adage because whoever's most passionate about it if you're not, if your ego isn't engaged and you're really artistically arguing for something, then that should be the way you go. And uh, not that it's necessarily always correct, but um, you you have to give in to some artistic impulse, and it can't really be about whose idea it is. It has to be about who cares most about the idea. I think a lot of collaborations get kind of botched up by ego, understandably. Yeah, I know. Uh producers who solve their disagreements by saying i'm jumping up and down about this and that is the signal to the Uh rest of the group i'm so passionate about this i'm never going to give up and once they hear that the others go okay you win yeah it's about knowing when to let that. well i think the interesting conversation is what is the producer's role and where does the producer get involved in the artistic decisions and um you know that's changed so much from the days when producers really had ideas that they then hired writers for. I think what's so interesting about all these movies being adapted into musicals is they're some of them are just are a little bloodless because they're not being driven by the artist, they're being driven by the producer. And if you're going to go out and hire somebody to do this and hire somebody to do that, you're not necessarily getting somebody who has a passion to do it. You know, it's so hard to make a living in the theater and somebody comes and offers you a job, you know, often they'll take it because they need a job or they want a job. It's not the same of them going, I've got to write about this or write about that. And I've done that myself. I've adapted a movie. Uh, and I realized it's a different a different kind of animal. So how do you like to work with producers? What's the... You've worked with a lot of them. What are a the, lot of different ones, yeah. yeah. So what are the your favorite characteristics of your favorite producers? Well, you know, part of it is just learning along the way. Um, 
And I have a, a system which I think works rather well, which is I welcome f- feedback from producers. Now, when I started, there was only be, you know, two producers on a project. Now there seems to be a kind of little village there. Uh, but uh, I always only want to talk to one person. And I always ask that notes come to me in written form first. Because, uh, you know, when you're in previews, so many things need to be addressed. Uh, and I'll have my list. And my general finding by doing this is that half the things that I hear from a producer, I, I'm totally in agreement with and is on my list as well. So that's kind of my method, and and also it allows me not to have to engage. I can engage the notes when I'm in a state to be um, relaxed, and uh, you know usually I'll, I'll get them and I'll sit down over a cup of coffee the next morning, or whatever, and I always answer them to the producer so they can. I I, I want them to see where my thinking is on it. Um, I've done that with actors, too, actually, where rather than give them notes, I'll write them notes and send them. Um, so um, I'm pretty collaborative. I think what's great about the theater is you have this preview process, and little by little, every day gets clearer and clearer what works, what doesn't. Um, and you have to make mistakes, you know, to find solutions. So I don't know. But I think, again, like I said about collaborators, every producer's different, too comes with their own sense of of their own aesthetic and what they're looking for. So the problem what you get a lot is, um, you know, you just start hearing so many opinions, as I'm sure you know. And I would imagine being a lead producer and having to listen to all the other producers is difficult. And then you have audience members and, you know, everybody calling you to tell you what they think. Everybody has an opinion. I blame it all on that those TV guys with the thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> when they came on the scene, suddenly everybody had an opinion. <laughs> so. It's Siskel and Ebert's fault. Yeah, well, I understand it. It's like, uh, yeah, I understand it, the impulse. So you talked about getting criticism sometimes for directing and writing your own work. Obviously, you've done it unbelievably successfully. How do you maintain your objectivity when you are also when yeah. you're that director in a musical and you're like, uh, no, I this is how it should go. I I want it to be this way from this. Well, that t- that takes learning on, you know, in general for anybody. Um, I think one thing is I leave the the writer out of the room. You know, I'll, I'll come into a rehearsal room and I'll say the writer's not here today, so don't talk to me about changing lines or doing this or that. You know, at some point, as a director, you have to take what the writer gives you and make it work. And I had to kind of have a split personality to realize, like when I did table settings, I spent half the time rewriting it with the actors in the room rather than directing it. And then I thought, wait a minute, you know, uh, I, I realized maybe not in that, but from that, that you have to kind of dissociate yourself as the writer to be a good director. What do you think about uh, today's musical theater writers, the next generation of them? Do you think that we're on a, the future is good for us? Oh, I think the future is amazing, actually. I'm very envious of a lot of, a lot of the talent that's out there. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think the theater's thriving, actually. You know, I came through when, 
theaters were closed and the commercial theater in particular, I, I was sort of on board kind of more of the birth of Off-Broadway and um, with Playwrights Horizons and then I worked at The Public, which was already obviously more established. Uh, but I think um, I think it's very bright. I, I, I'm excited by the new work. How is writing movies different from writing plays or music? Um, well, that's interesting because I've just been in a sort of writing movie phase. Um, and in fact, after doing Woods, adapted Sunday, and I just wrote an original movie of my own, which I made this past year. Um, and that's also been a learning curve for me. I feel, I feel like I'm just now really at the point of being a good screenwriter. Um, well, you have to think imagistically. One of my strengths is not prose writing, which is hard because screenwriting is a lot about description. But you've got to, in a movie, paint a kind of enthusiasm and and a visual that you don't really have to do in, in playwriting or writing librettos, I think. You know, they like to do three acts in movies. So it's a slightly different structure. I think you, you don't have the gift of language that you can have in film and in theater. And I think also uh, you can't write a scene, really. It's more than a couple of pages. Whereas, you know, plays and are all about just the opposite. Well, the Into the Woods movie is, is one of the best musical to movie adaptations I think I've oh, seen. Oh, thanks. I learned a lot from Rob Marshall. It was really wonderful to work with him on that. Uh, very liberating and... He had a real sense of visually how he wanted things to look and be, and it was very collaborative. That was kind of terrific. You've been a part of such monumental musical productions and obviously plays and movies as well. Uh, in fact, I will just tell you a side story. Falsettos, I was at NYU when Falsettos was here. And, well, you're not going to like half of this because I second acted it like 27 times uh -huh. um, because I was so in love with that production. Wow. Uh, and I... I want to ask, was one of my James Lipton questions. So if the Smithsonian called you today and said, we have room for one of your shows in the Institute, we're going to put one here, and you can choose which one that would be, what's the one show you want to really be remembered for? Well, I don't know. I mean, I love Sunday, and I would say Sunday, but other shows I think, like I think Passion is a great show. I love Passion. I think it's our perfect collaboration. Um, but I think Sunday, I like Sunday just because it was my birth, you know. I mean, it was uh, a moment of, of artistic and creative, I don't know, freedom and vitality that you can only have when you're starting out in something and, you know, you're a bit of a virgin. So, But it's funny you talk about falsettos because, you know, I'm, we're going to revive it and I'm going to direct it. And that's one of the ones I think people probably say, well, why is he directing it again? You know, And I say to myself, why am I directing it again? I'm not even... It's like your baby, you know? It's kind of your baby, but... Uh, like when I did the revival of Into the Woods, I thought I could make it better, which is why I did that. And the irony was, at the end of the day... I realized it was just fine the way it was. It's imperfect. There's no question about it being imperfect, but it is what it is, you know. Um, and falsettos, I'm just curious to do again because well, there are a couple of people I thought would do a great job of it that weren't interested in doing it. And 
I thought it was the best thing I ever directed. So, you know, the challenge for me now is to rediscover it and, you know, see how I think about it today and see if that will change the way it comes out, I guess. So my previous question about your objectivity, and I just witnessed you say it, you just talked about Into the Woods being imperfect. Yeah. What about it do you think is imperfect? Like, tell me what a moment that like, ah, that bugs me. That that didn't work out the way I thought it would. Well, like what I love about the movie is there's no narrator, you know, and I don't know whether that narrator, narrator that that might have been a more interesting show without a narrator on stage. Um, it's lumbering a little bit into the woods. It's, you know, what's great about Steve and I is we have so many ideas. I mean, like that is the crazy hard part for us because we just were like blah, 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 with ideas and having to reduce them was tough. Um, when I say imperfect, I just, ah, you know, it's got like three ballads at the end. And I mean, you know, you can pick it apart. Uh, you know, it was funny when I did the movie and Cameron McIntosh came to the movie. I said, well, Cameron, it, we, we cut no more, you know, because he kept telling us to cut no more, cut no more at that point in the show. Nobody wants another ballad and no one wants to hear from them, you know. Uh, of course, I hate that it's out of the movie. And, you know, to some thinking, it's it's a shortcoming of the show, but that's the show, you know. And God knows the show's been done endlessly. So, hey, you know, that's uh, that's okay with me. Well, everything is imperfect. I think that's what makes things I interesting. I think passion's kind of perfect, but <laughs> as perfect as you can get. Uh, you're right. Everything is. I don't know. You know, some shows are perfect. Um, Gypsy's perfect. And I think there's some definitely perfect shows that I wouldn't touch. I wouldn't even imagine making a change to, you know. Uh, so. Is there a show you want to direct? Oh, wow. Um I'm asking this also as a producer. Uh, have you, you as a director? Um, not offhand, tell you the truth. Not offhand. They're shows I love, but I don't know that I would want to direct them. Um, I don't know. It's funny. Nobody's ever asked me. I very rarely get asked to do anything, so it's funny. You know. Well, you know, I've read a famous article that asked Steve about what songs he wished he wrote. Right. What Books to musicals do you wish you Oh, wrote? there's tons of those. Gypsy and I think Spring Awakening is perfect. I love Spring Awakening. And I think the recent revival of it proved what a great show it is, that it could be revised so soon after what I thought was a really terrific production and have a completely different production of it that illuminated the show. And uh, I mean, that's really what stands the test of time. I think Sweeney's a pretty perfect show. Um, I mean, there's tons of them, you know, really. Gypsy, though, I think is a masterwork. So, to your own admission, you had a pretty easy beginning of of your incredible career. Uh, wow. Well, yeah, it didn't feel easy at the time. <laughs> you know, Sunday was one of the, I thought was going to put me in my grave. So, you know, uh, that was just a horrific experience, actually, in many respects, you know. so What made it so difficult? Well, I was so inexperienced, you know, you have to realize I had only worked on one other musical, which was March of the Falsettos, which, hello, is a little one act with five people. I'd never done a Broadway show. 
I'd never really written a real book for a musical. I'd never really directed. You know, I mean, you go down the list. And there, suddenly I was on Broadway. I'm just totally unprepared. I'm so naive, you know. I I had this idea. First of all, we ended up going into the booth because I'd only done little off-Broadway shows in 99 seats. 150 seats was the largest thing I'd done. And when we looked at these theaters, they were enormous to me. So I picked the smallest one on Broadway. And the producers kept saying, it's, I don't know if we make any money in this theater. You know, why don't you go over to the, this one and that one? And I sort of, you know, I guess I was pretty stubborn. I said, no, I really want it to be a little jewel box, you know. And, and then I had this stupid idea because I thought, well, they never, you know, amplified musicals till, you know, Technology came to bear. I said, we're in the smallest theater. Let's not use any amplification. So, uh, and then Steve didn't finish the score. So suddenly we were previewing with half of a second act. You know, and I had written these uh, monologues to put in the place of where songs went because something had to go there. And uh, the the very, uh, we were so far behind teching the show that we hadn't lit it by the time the first audience arrived. So the first audience arrives, it was must have been April, and there was a horrible heat wave. And they hadn't any air conditioning on in the theater. So we put this show on. Um, you couldn't hear it. You couldn't see it because there was no lights up. It was endless. And there was like three songs in the second act. And it was so long, and people were pouring out of that theater, and I thought I was going to have a heart attack, and I was hoping I did, so I didn't have to come back the next day. But, um, you know, it was a real trial by fire, and the producers were like, what the fuck's going on here, you know? So that was tough, and the actors were not uh, on my side, you know, because I didn't really know how to direct actors, and... So it was a real tough ride, that one. And how did you write the ship in that short period of time? Well, the next day, I said to the line designer, put on all the lights, and I said, get sound equipment in here and get mics on everybody. And I think what you have to do is be fearless, and I think I have that quality where I don't. I don't mind making huge changes. I think you just... I think the worst thing is when people make these little tiny things that they think is really going to fix everything. And uh, I'm very, in a good way of being a writer, I'm not precious about anything. At one point, I had to have uh, Steve Sondheim come in and talk to the company because they were so discouraged. And um, I also remember Michael Bennett, who I'd met, um, saying, part of your problem is the producers have sold all these previews to um, benefit group sales, and they're just not the audience for this show. So we had a really kind of, you know, audience that was coming to, because they were supporting, you know, Sloan Kettering Hospital. They just really weren't in the mood for that kind of a piece, particularly the second act. So, but, you know, it's every day, and... The last song came in literally, I think, a day before the critics came. And I think the orchestration came in the day the critics came. And the thing that happened was 
we really were in the trenches together and this cast that was sort of hostile towards me came around, you know, and I learned from them. And when I say hostile, the only one, Bernadette Peters, a saint, a saint. And I remember one night when we were doing Move On, Mandy and Bernadette said, we are not leaving this theater till we crack this number. And we stayed there. We like everybody left and we kind of had a ghost light on the stage and the three of us were there to the wee hours of the morning, figuring out the blocking and the staging and every little moment of it. And when you work, I think they raised my game so much because they taught me what it was like. They don't fuck around. You know, Mandy is, was really intense, but it was always in, in service of the, of the work. And I realized that actors need to have a strong director. If they don't feel... You know, I'm a sort of passive and kind of laid-back guy, and I had to learn to instill confidence in people and be definitive. And, you know, uh, and that was sort of where I learned how to rise to an occasion and take it over. Yeah, great it's not in my nature. Great collaborations. I think everybody raises everyone else's game. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, being in trouble isn't a bad thing. I mean, the bad thing is when it creates a kind of panic or... But, you know, to this day, people ask me questions. I'll say, I don't know the answer today. I'm not going to bullshit you with an answer. The question is a good question, and we'll answer the question. But, you know, you have to go into things. That's part of the excitement of what we're doing. If, you know, you want to you should do revivals then, if you just want to do things where you're not making something new, because then you don't have those questions. But, you know, finding our center and... and and the reason it's so good a show is because Steve took all that time to write it, you know. He always said to me, look, I can't, I don't want to write the wrong song. I don't want to write the wrong song. I want to just wait till I know exactly what I'm doing and what needs to be done. And then, and that's what he did. And we went kind of successively. And man, each time a song came in, you could just feel that second act pulling together, you know. But it's a hard show because people like the first act. When, once we have gotten that down... It was hard to to top it, you know. So, tips for young writers and directors starting today that are, frankly, super passionate and have yeah. such high emotions of success, very opposite of the way you started. Well, I would say, you know, don't wait for somebody to do your work. Do it yourself. You know, like I put on that Gertrude Stein play. I mean, the great thing about theater is, you know, you can put it on. Get it up, work on it, don't wait for people to do it for you. You know, people seem so running around with this material and it's hard to read, you know, off a page. I've turned down some really great shows because I just can't read them on the page. You know, if somebody had done a reading of it or whatever, I might have actually gotten involved. So, uh, you know, I would say... You know, you got to get it up, and if nobody's getting it up for you, get it up yourself, you know. Crowdsource it, whatever you need to do. Get a room and put it up and get people in to see it. Okay, my last question, which has been known now as my genie question. Oh, okay. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to see you. <laughs> Does it have to be the one from Aladdin? <laughs> Yeah. Any genie. Any like. genie. Okay. I wish all of you could see, uh, have seen James' face when I... <laughs> no, no. I happen to love Aladdin, the musical. It's just, a, I don't know that I want that guy in my room. <laughs> and I love that actor who, by the way, I 
take credit for bringing into the world because he was in spelling bee in San Francisco. He's so talented. Yes. So imagine any genie comes to you okay. and says... How about the one from TV and the bikini? Okay. Perfect. And says, uh, I want to thank you for your incredible contributions to the musical theater by granting you one wish. Just one. And I want you to think about the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway. That makes you angry. You can't sleep at night. Is so frustrating to you that you would ask this genie to wish away. What's the one thing you'd ask? That's a complicated wish. Um... Well, if if I had to wish one thing for Broadway, it would be that there was a Broadway house that wasn't driven by commerce somehow, you know, that these young people, there's so many talented young people have a chance to work in a big theater like Broadway uh, every year, you know, and that there would somehow be, I know there have been attempts to create a venue for new work, you know. I'd like to see that happen. I don't know whoever would do it, but you never know. But it's true. It's You learn by doing, and if you don't get a chance to do, you're going to learn, you know? So that's simple. Very true, and thank you very much yeah, for being here. Yeah, wow, we chatted a long time, didn't we? And I'm very much looking forward to that revival of Falsettos. So yeah. I can't wait till it happens. You can come to both acts. I'll get you in. <laughs> Don't forget, only eight more chances for you to see Spring Awakening as of today, Monday, January 18th. If it's after the 18th, you have even less. SpringAwakeningTheMusical.com. Don't miss it. I promise if you like the podcast, you're going to love the show. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.